Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. If you'd get a Bible out and open it up to Acts, the 8th chapter. Acts, chapter 8 is where we're going to begin in just a moment. This is the part of our worship that is devoted to the preaching of God's Word, which means that we want to be like those Bereans that are commended for receiving the Word with all eagerness and who examined the Scriptures to see if the things that were being taught, if they were true and if they were correct. Hope that you have that mindset this morning. As you're looking for Acts chapter 8, let me just echo the welcome that's already been extended to you. What a fine, fine number we have in attendance this morning. We do have lots of guests and we appreciate so much your your being here. Hope that you find everything that we do today to be done in spirit and in truth. And it is indeed a privilege. We can come together uh, as the people of God and as people who are seeking after the things of God to reverence our Creator, to give honor and glory to Jesus Christ. We've done already some of that in our singing and in our praying, and we want to continue that even right now as we open up the pages of God's Word. In Acts chapter 8, let's read together. This is the account of Philip and of the Ethiopian eunuch. And after Philip has had the opportunity to teach and to, uh, to proclaim the good news about Jesus to this Ethiopian man, Acts 8 verse 36 tells us, Acts 8 verse 36, that as they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? This is without a doubt my favorite baptism story in all of the New Testament. I just love everything about Acts chapter 8. I love the circumstances that led to this man's conversion. He was he was just sitting in his chariot in the middle of the desert reading his Bible. I love the question that Philip comes and asks him there in verse number 30. Do you understand what you're reading? I love as well the question that the Ethiopian man asks in response. How can I unless somebody helps me? And then after just a couple of minutes he even says as well... Who is this passage talking about? Of who does the writer speak? And of course, I love as well, I love the simplicity of what Philip then does in verse 35, that beginning with this same Scripture, he preaches unto him Jesus. But I'll tell you what I love most of all about this story. I love the absolute eagerness on the part of the eunuch to be baptized in verse 36. There's no high-pressure sales pitch here. There's no arm twisting here. There's no, you know, over kind of selling and convincing going on here. Nope, there's none of that. Here's someone who wants to be baptized. Here's someone who knows that he needs to be baptized. Here's somebody who does not want to wait to be baptized. Maybe the reason I like this Ethiopian man so much is because in many ways he reminds me of a particular segment of our own audience this morning. He reminds me very much of our kids. I think many kids can sympathize with the Ethiopian man here. Kids are interested in baptism. You realize that, don't you? Actually, the word interested might be selling it a little bit short. Maybe a better word is kids are fascinated by baptism. You just watch. The next time somebody comes forward to be baptized, your kids will be straining their necks. They'll be climbing up on top of you. They may even come down here to the very front row because they want to catch a glimpse of what's about to happen back there in that water. In fact, it is not uncommon that after somebody is baptized, some young child, they'll go to their mom or to their dad or maybe they'll even come to me and they'll say, I can do that. I want to do that. What hinders me? from being baptized. Let me ask you, Mom and Dad, what are you saying about that? 
What do you say when that happens? What do you tell your kids about baptism? When a seven-year-old says, I want to be baptized, how do you respond to that? Is that a good conversation? Is that a productive conversation? Or is that an awkward conversation that maybe ends in tears? Or maybe even leads to some really bad attitudes and maybe even develops some hard-heartedness that is very, very hard to overcome years down the road? What do you say as well, maybe on the, on the car ride home, after your children have just witnessed a baptism? Or maybe after Mr. Josh has just preached a sermon on baptism? What do you say in the car ride? You, you are talking about those kinds of things on the car ride home, aren't you? Do you talk to them about, about what that means for a person to be baptized? Do you talk to them about the significance of that? Do you talk to them about the purpose of this massively important decision known as baptism? I hope you realize, moms and dads, that it is just a mistake. It is a mistake for you to assume that just because you take your children and you safely deposit them into this building three times a week, that that in and of itself automatically ensures that they understand what baptism is all about. We'll have to do more than just that. We'll have to take some personal initiative here. We'll have to talk with our kids about this vital subject. But what should you say? What should you emphasize when talking about baptism? This morning, our year-long preaching theme on parenting makes a much-needed stop at the very same place that the eunuch made his chariot to stop, at the waters of baptism. This morning, I want to talk to you about helping our kids, helping your kids, to understand baptism. Now, make no mistake, much of what I'm going to have to say this morning is going to be tailored to parents and to grandparents of younger children. But make no mistake about this. Everything that we're discussing today, it has applications all across the board. Everybody in this room needs to grasp these vital truths that we're going to talk about, no matter what age you are. And even if you already are a Christian, these are the kinds of things that I believe you want to stress to your neighbor and your co-worker whenever you're talking to them about matters of salvation, matters of baptism. But I am this morning, I am particularly trying to help some moms and dads who I know they want so much for their children to obey the gospel, to be added to the family of God, but they want to make sure They want to make certain that their children understand and that their children are truly ready for this major moment in life. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to give you three talking points that will help you to help them in their understanding and in being able to gauge their level of readiness to be buried with Christ in baptism for the remission of their sins. And I do believe that the very best place that that discussion needs to start, in fact, any discussion on baptism, it needs to start with this. We need to start by just telling our kids that it is wonderful. It is. It is wonderful, first of all, that they want to be baptized. We need to tell them that's great that you want to be baptized. But furthermore, we need to tell them that it is wonderful whenever you are baptized into Christ. In fact, just look right here in our text in Acts chapter 8. Drop down to verse 38. Verse 38 says that he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Verse 39, and when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. 
This guy was delighted. He was thrilled. And dare I say it, he was emotional. We get a little bit nervous sometimes whenever we start talking about emotion and mixing that with matters of faith. We're a little bit skeptical of that. We're not too fond of emotional outbursts in religion. And and I understand about that. I understand why that is. Because so many people today, what they want to do is they want to supplant truth with their emotions and with their feelings and what their heart is telling them. And we don't want to get caught up in that. Absolutely not. But this right here in Acts chapter 8, this right here is emotions in their rightful place. Acts 8 tells us that when you please the Lord, when you do what God has commanded, that always leads to right emotions. This is right. This is so right. This is very right. And moms and dads, we don't want to be afraid to say that. Being baptized into Christ is wonderful. It is the single greatest moment of your life. There will never be a better moment. You will never regret being baptized into Christ. When somebody comes down this aisle, there is tears. There is weeping. There's emotions kind of already. And why is that? Why is there the tears and the weeping? It's because there's sorrow. There's sorrow for our sins. And we're sorry that Jesus had to die for our sins. But then we go into that water. And we come up out of that water and we know. We know that we are forgiven by the grace and mercy of God. And I'll just tell you, it is awesome. It is amazing in the fullest sense of the word. Look with me in Colossians chapter 2 now. In Colossians chapter 2, look at how Paul describes baptism. In Colossians chapter 2, I'm reading here in verse 11. In Colossians 2 and in verse 11, Paul says, In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Paul, what are you talking about here? The circumcision of Christ? Well, circumcision was the sign in the Old Testament. It was the sign of being a Jew. It was the sign that you were a part of God's people under the old law. It was the sign of the covenant. Now, Paul says, he says there is a new sign. There is a new sign of being in that covenant relationship with God. What is it? Verse 12, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith, in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. People who come up out of the waters of baptism, they know about Colossians 2 verse 12. They know about the powerful working of God to forgive their sins. And they have just a flood of emotions whenever that takes place. And I know. I know firsthand about that. Because I'm the guy who does the majority of the baptizing around here. And I've been in that baptistry. I've been there with people. I've been there when somebody comes up out of that water and they're, they're maybe gasping for breath a little bit. And they've got water pouring off their head and dripping off of their face. But then, in a moment, there's just a smile that just breaks out across their face. This is the kind of smile that takes a jackhammer to get it off of their face. And even if their body is shivering a little bit from the cold air, doesn't matter. There's a feeling of joy. There are feelings of peace. There's a feeling of excitement and zealousness that just overwhelms them. Why? Because they know. They know that angels are rejoicing. They know that God is pleased with what they have done. They know that their sins have been washed away. They know that their name is now written in the Lamb's book of life. They have confidence. They have assurance that if Jesus comes right now, I'm going to heaven. If I drop dead right now, 
I'm going to heaven. It is amazing. It is incredible. It is wonderful. And I do not think that there is any point in hiding that from our kids. We want to just tell them that it is the greatest thing you will ever do. It is the most wonderful moment of your entire life. And it is important that we tell them that. Just think about this, just really on a practical level. Because kids, kids are very curious. I mentioned a second about the straining of the necks to see what's going on in the baptistry. They're really curious about that. You think about watching a baptism as a, as a five-year-old, or maybe as a seven-year-old. Think about that. This is quite a scene that's taking place here. It's really quiet in the building. And we know there's people back there in those rooms. They're doing something. We're not exactly sure what's going on. But then those curtains, those curtains, they, they open up. <gasps> there's people standing in the water. And then about 15 seconds later, ka-chunk, Josh dunks that person under the water. And what are many kids thinking? They're thinking, whoa, I don't know if I want to be doing that. I don't know if I want to be submerged underwater in that way. And then maybe they ask, maybe on the car ride home, Mom, Mom, why did you do that? Or Dad, you did that before. What was that like, Dad? I'll tell you what it was like. It was incredible. And if a child, even after explaining to them the wonderfulness of being baptized in Christ, even if after that they say, you know what, I don't think I ever want to do that. It just looks so scary. What we want to say is we want to say, it's awesome. It is. And someday, someday you won't be scared to do that. Someday you will want to do that. You will want to be baptized. In fact, maybe the best thing that we can say in a situation like that is, you know what, I did that. Because I knew that I was a sinner. And I knew that when I came up out of that water, I knew that my sins had been forgiven by the grace and mercy of God. The waters of baptism made that so. It was the greatest feeling in the world. You know, sometimes, sometimes I'm afraid that whenever we talk about baptism, what happens is is we reduce it, we reduce it to nothing more than just a, a simple set of very sterile doctrines. And let's be sure... There is a ton of doctrine in the New Testament about baptism. And we need to know about it. We need to try to learn as much of it as we can. But in the end, the Bible says that the Ethiopian man went on his way rejoicing. And when you were baptized, mom, dad, grandma, granddad, you went on your way rejoicing. Do you remember that? We often sing in that grand old hymn, Oh, what a wonderful, wonderful day. Day I will never forget. We need to remember that. We need to remember what that day was like for us. And then we need to tell our kids just how wonderful it is to be clothed with Christ in baptism. But we can't stop there. There needs to be some more. When we're talking with our kids about baptism, secondly, what they need to understand is they need to understand that it is more than just knowing the facts about the gospel. You know, when kids talk about baptism, what they want to know is, is they want to know, am I old enough? Am I old enough to do that? Am I ready to do that? When am I going to be ready to do that? And sometimes as we begin to talk to them about that, what we do is we just start quizzing them. We just start quizzing them with all kinds of things from the Scriptures, okay? What did Jesus do to make salvation possible? Can you name for me all of the steps in God's plan of salvation? What is baptism for? Can you explain what baptism does? And there isn't any doubt. You've got to know some stuff. You absolutely need to know the facts. You need to understand those details about the gospel. In fact, as you go back to Acts chapter 8, 
That is what verse 35 tells us. Acts 8 verse 35 in our opening text. Remember what it says there? Acts 8 verse 35. Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told the Ethiopian man the good news about Jesus. You cannot pledge your life to Christ if you don't know Christ. You're not going to feel wonderful and great about baptism if you don't have any idea of what Jesus did on the cross and the powerful working of God. Instead, instead you're just going to get really, really, really wet. And so, yes, absolutely. You need to understand some facts and some information before you can be baptized. But I want to say, baptism is a whole lot more than just knowing a bunch of facts. You know, you can teach a four-year-old to recite those steps in the plan of salvation. You can teach a four-year-old to say Jesus whenever you ask them who died on the cross. But that doesn't make a four-year-old ready for baptism, does it? Look with me in Acts, the 22nd chapter. In Acts chapter 22, Paul here recounts the events that led to his conversion. And as he walks along through this story, I think there's just a couple of pointers here along the way that we would do well to note. Parents in particular, we do well to note these things. In Acts chapter 22... As Paul addresses this crowd in the temple courtyard, reflects upon his time when he was known as Saul, as Saul the persecutor, he says in Acts 22 and verse 1, he says, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. When they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. Stop right there. You know, sometimes sometimes people think that they need to get their life all cleaned up before they can become a Christian. Hey, look right here. Saul, Saul's life was pretty clean by most people's standards. His life was squeaky clean. He's a super righteous fellow, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, strictly adhering to the law. Mom and dad, don't be saying to your child, you're not good enough to become a Christian yet. Yikes! I know of parents that have said that. Don't be saying that kind of thing. Don't be giving your kids that kind of oppression. Nobody's going to somehow good their way into heaven. That's not what salvation is about. Continue on, verse 4. But I persecuted this way to the death, Saul says, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and to bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. Saul did a lot of good things, but Saul also did a lot of bad things. And so we read then verse 6. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. That right there, folks? That's Saul getting the facts. Saul's getting the facts right there, isn't he? He gets a personal introduction to Jesus. Who is Jesus? Who is the Lord? Who is it that I am persecuting? Saul needed to know those things. And in the very same way, there are absolutely facts that you need to know that you need to understand as best we can. We need to try to master those facts so that we can become a child of God. There's not any question about that. But watch what happens next. There was more than just the learning of the facts. Verse 10, And then I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise 
and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. A big part of becoming a Christian is a willingness to obey Jesus Christ the Lord. To do what He says, to do what He commands. You know, we seem to have trouble with that a lot of times with adults. Adults who are learning the gospel and you're trying to convince them to obey the gospel. Adults have a lot of problem with that. You know, yeah, I want to go to heaven. Yeah, I need my sins to be forgiven. Okay, go to Damascus. Well, I wasn't really planning on going to Damascus today. i got a bunch of other things I'm kind of wanting to do instead of doing that. That's not going to work, is it? Saul had taken that approach. Nah, it wouldn't have worked for him. Being a Christian demands our absolute obedience to Jesus Christ the Lord. But look a little bit further in this story. And I actually need you to hold Acts 22. Turn back to Acts 9. Let's grab the parallel account in Acts chapter 9. Because look at what happened once Saul got to Damascus. He had some friends who were willing to lead him into the city. He gets to Damascus. What happens next? Acts chapter 9, look in verse 8. Acts 9 verse 8, Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. And so they led him by the hand, and they brought him into Damascus. Verse 9 now. And for three days he was out without sight, notice this, and neither ate nor drank. That's important. That doesn't seem like it's important, but that is important. Because you know what we're seeing right there? The fact that Saul did not eat or drink for those three days, that is evidence of godly Sorrow. Sorrow over what, you might ask? We'll turn back to Acts 22 now. In Acts chapter 22, after going those three days without food or drink, God sends a man by the name of Ananias to come to him and to tell him what he needs to do next. Acts 22 verse 16, Ananias comes and he says, Why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. That's what we're looking for. Saul had sorrow over his sin. And he needed those sins to be washed away. You see, it is more than just the knowing of facts. What we're talking about here is we're talking about helping our kids to understand that we must have an understanding of personal sinfulness. That I am a sinner. And I'll go ahead and just tell you, moms and dads, if you've not already figured this out on your own, that is hard to measure in children. That's very hard to measure with kids. And if you're not careful, you may run the risk of teaching a four-year-old how to say, in a very precocious way, I'm a sinner. But that doesn't make it true. That doesn't make them a sinner. And certainly that does not make them ready to be baptized. What does it mean to be a sinner? Well, in one sense, to be a sinner means to be someone who breaks the law of God. First John 3 and verse 4 talks about lawlessness. But I would say to you that there is more to it than just that. Look with me in Romans the 7th chapter, please. In Romans chapter 7, Paul describes his life. And what does he say about sin and the effect that it is having upon his life? In Romans chapter 7, I'm reading here in verse 13. In Romans 7 and in verse 13, Paul says, Did that which is good, talking about the law, did that which is good then bring death to me? No, by no means. It was sin. Sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Verse 14 now. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. To be a sinner means to realize that I am under the power of sin. 
that I did wrong and that I continue to do wrong. And the more that I do that wrong, it just reinforces the selfishness and the self-centeredness and the pride that caused me to sin in the first place. It is my fault. It is entirely my fault that I am in bondage, that I am enslaved to sin. And it is the recognition that I, by my own power, I cannot escape. There's nothing that I myself can do to escape the power of sin. I am sold under sin. Somebody maybe says, well... Well, what can you do about that? I tell you, you can't do anything about that. You on your own, there's nothing you can do about that. That's why in Ephesians chapter 2, in Ephesians chapter 2, we recognize that we are a sinner. That means that we are spiritually bankrupt. That means that we cannot buy ourselves out of that spiritual slavery. And so Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that salvation, salvation does not come from within ourselves. Salvation, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8, for by grace, You have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. You see, only Jesus can buy me out of sin. Only Jesus can forgive me of the sins that I've committed against God. Only Jesus can redeem me. Now, we're putting all these ideas together, and I hope what you're seeing is we're really starting to ramp things up here. This is higher order thinking than a four-year-old is ready for. This is a whole lot more than just simply saying, you know, sometimes I don't do what my mommy tells me to do. This is more than, you know, one time I did something that was bad. No, this is talking about who I am before the Lord. This is about how I see myself, trying to see things through God's eyes. Look with me in Romans chapter 5. In Romans chapter 5, I do believe that salvation requires of us to be able to see ourselves as best as we can the way that God sees us. And how is it that God sees us? In Romans chapter 5, look with me in verse 6. In Romans 5 and verse 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Is that you? Maybe it's a good place to just ask your kids a question. Do, Do you see yourself that way? Do you see yourselves as weak? Do you see yourselves as ungodly? Verse 8 now. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see what we have here? This is the understanding where we come to the moment, the light bulb goes off, we understand that I have rebelled against God. That I am ungodly. I am weak. I am a sinner. Not that I'm a good person who does good most of the time. No, no, no. Paul says we must see ourselves as ungodly sinners. And that there's nothing that we can do on our own to fix that. We need Jesus. And what I'm saying to you this morning is that anyone, man or woman, boy or girl, Anyone who comes to Christ, they come because they realize and they understand not, you know, one time, sometime in the past, I think I did a bad thing. No, 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 no. People come to Christ because they realize, I've rebelled against God. I have been ungodly. I am a sinner. Now, can I be very practical about that? Give you some ideas to take away from here, parents? First of all, what that means is, is that means that we need to start Let me start by developing a sense of sin in our child's lives. And yes, we want to be appropriate about that. 
if a three-year-old boy hits his sister, that is probably not the time to say, stop that, you vile sinner, you. That just, that just doesn't fit, does it? That's just not, just not appropriate. But at some point, at some point, we want to introduce to them the concept of obeying God and obeying God's laws. And that when we do not obey God's laws, that's not a mistake. What is that? It's sin. It's lawlessness. And we need to be talking to them about that. We need to talk to them about, you know, what do you then do about that? We talk to them about how God is the one who is able to forgive us of our sin by His grace and by His mercy and by what He has done through Jesus Christ. And furthermore, we need to be talking to our kids about being responsible for our sins. That sin is not, you know, I did this bad thing, but you know, really, really it was his fault that I did that. It's your fault, mommy or daddy, that I did that. No, 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 no. Sin is not somebody else's fault. Sin is not Adam's fault. Sin is our own fault. We made the mess. We made the mess and we can't clean it up on our own. We need Jesus Christ. We need the Lord. He's the only one that can fix all of this. And when we develop this sense of sin in their lives, I'll tell you what it leads to. It leads to what that Ethiopian man said in Acts chapter 8. I want to be baptized. Can I be baptized? There's a man who understood he was a sinner. He was reading Isaiah 53. He understood that was talking about him. You know, too often. Too often kids want to be baptized simply because they're afraid to go to hell. And be certain, hell is frightening. It ought to scare us. All of us, any age, we ought to be afraid about the idea of going to hell for all of eternity. Our brother prayed in his prayer about the idea, the weeping and gnashing of teeth where you know the, the, the worm doesn't die and all these terrible things. That is a scary proposition. I get that. I hope you get that. But let's be clear. Let's tell our kids. God does not randomly just put people into hell. And God certainly does not put innocent children into hell. We want to help our kids understand That it is sinners, the ungodly, rebels who refuse salvation in Jesus Christ. Those are the people who are going to be lost. Those are the people who are going to spend an eternity in hell. Because when they understand that, when they grasp this kind of stuff, what that does is that then opens up the door for us to have the conversation with them that we really want to have. And that is, are you a sinner? Are you a sinner? Do you think you're a sinner? What does it mean to be a sinner? Have you ever sinned? Can you name some things that you have done that have been sins against God? What does it mean to be ungodly? What can you do, if anything, about your sins? You see, now we're talking about sin. Now we're developing some self-awareness in their lives. We're helping them to see their image, their how they see themselves in the eyes of the Lord instead of just memorizing and regurgitating a bunch of facts. All of that. All of that then leads me to say probably the very most important thing that you can say about baptism to your children. And that is, that is that it is something that changes you. It is something that truly changes you. When a person is truly obedient to the gospel, baptism just changes everything about that person. Because when you become a Christian, what you are doing is you are now submitting to the Lordship of Christ. Look what the Bible says about this in Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul talks about this in the sense of an old man and a new man. In Ephesians chapter 4, I'm reading here beginning in verse 22. In Ephesians 4 and in verse 22, 
He says here, as the truth is in Jesus, verse 22, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul says you're going to be different. You're not going to just keep on being the same old person that you were before you were baptized. Paul says when a person is truly converted, then just by definition, just think of the definition of the word convert. means to change. There's going to be change. We're going to be changed into something brand new, something better. Now, can I sharpen on that a little bit? Can I sharpen that by identifying, first of all, what we don't want? And then secondly, what we should not expect as we talk about this change? And then thirdly, let's just be very, very clear about what this does mean to make this change. First and foremost, baptism does not mean gaining access to some kind of club membership. And I realize it is hard sometimes for kids not to think of baptism in that way. That this is a, this is a kind of a religious society, it's a religious club. And what you do is you go into that door back there and you meet the guy in the baptistry and he puts you under the water and you come up out of that water and what do you get? You get all kinds of perks and privileges. Get your name in the church directory. If you're a male, you get to start doing things on the duty roster and yeah, they come and serve you the Lord's Supper. It's awesome. You get all kinds of good stuff as part of this club. I'm going to be very, very clear. The Bible never talks about the church in terms of being some kind of club. Ever. You can call the church the body of Christ. You can call the church the family of God. You can call it a living temple. There's all kinds of metaphors that are used in the New Testament, but it is never talked about like a club, as some kind of of, of society that gets together. And we do not want our children to then think of baptism as some kind of a some kind of an initiation rite to get into this club where you get all these perks and these privileges and now we get to kind of carry, you're a card-carrying member. Hey, look here, I'm one of these people that's part of this church and ultimately the church is going to end up taking you to heaven. That's a messed up view of the church. That's a messed up view of what baptism is all about. Mom and dad, if that's what your kid is thinking, you need to get in there and you need to fix that up. You need to get that clean. Secondly, though, let me say that we cannot expect a child, as we think about this change, we cannot expect a child who is baptized to suddenly become an adult. And unfortunately, there are people who think that that's what somehow happens. That when you're baptized, somehow that makes a young person, it makes them into an adult. I remember a couple of years ago, I was in a meeting. And there was a young man who had, who had just recently been baptized into Christ. I think he was like maybe 10 years old. And a, a couple of weeks had, had gone by since he had obeyed the gospel. And after services, he was back in the foyer and he was, he was clowning around with some of his friends in the foyer. And I overheard somebody, a grown-up, I overheard them say in kind of a condescending tone, I heard them say, I thought he had been baptized. Well, you know, about a minute before that guy got there, I was clowning around with those kids too. And what that leads me to say is that it says, if you go into the water a boy, you're going to come up out of the water a boy. If you go into the water a girl, you're going to come up out of the water a girl. Baptism will do all kinds of things. It'll wash you clean. It'll get your name recorded in the Lamb's Book of Life. But it will not make you a grown-up. And we need to remember that. I'm really saying that for the benefit of all of us who are adults. That's not the kind of change that we're talking about. What we're talking about when we talk about how baptism changes you, baptism changes you because it is a commitment to Jesus Christ. 
I hope you know the passage that I'm going for. I'm looking for Romans chapter 6. In Romans chapter 6, in probably one of the most thorough discussions about what baptism is, about what it does, about what it's all about, read with him beginning in verse 1, Romans 6 and in verse 1, Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. What Paul says here is he says that baptism, baptism is the it is the marking point. It is the moment when we make that commitment to live for Christ. It is that moment in time in which we pledge ourselves to the King of Kings. We crucify the old man of sin so that we can walk in newness of life. And sometimes, sometimes that is difficult for people who have grown up in the church, so to speak. Because since they had pretty good parents growing up, Maybe they didn't go out and live the prodigal son lifestyle. They didn't go out and do the big kinds of scandalous sins that we often think of. They didn't do the drugs and the alcohol. They didn't do the the promiscuity and all that kind of stuff. And so when they were baptized, there wasn't this big ginormous shift, this big ginormous change in their lives. They didn't have to stop the partying and the drinking and the sexual immorality. No, they just... It's kind of continued on with the same pattern of life that they had developed ever since they were a child. And sometimes then what happens is as they get older, that causes them to maybe kind of start second-guessing their baptism. You know, I wonder if maybe I was truly converted when I was baptized. Would you look with me in Luke, the ninth chapter? In Luke chapter 9, I want to be very clear because I don't want anybody this morning to be doubting their baptism simply based on the things that I'm saying here today. That's something you'll have to... Decide it's between you and the Lord. But I want you to notice something in Luke, the ninth chapter. What does it mean to be a disciple? To truly be a disciple of Jesus? Let's just let Jesus define that for us. In Luke 9 and in verse 23, Jesus said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Would you please notice that just because you were you know, kind of, sort of, almost walking with Jesus already before you were baptized? Or just because you were walking and you were around a bunch of people who were committed to Jesus? Do you understand that that does not mean that you were committed to Jesus? Being committed to Jesus means I have taken up my cross. It's like marriage. That's the comparison that I make. Before Tiffany and I got married... We spent a lot of time together. 
We did a lot of cool things together, a lot of fun things together. She even let me hold her hand before we got married. But you know what? We weren't married. We weren't committed. Which means that at any time, I could have left. I could have said, yeah, this was fun, but I'm done with it. I'm going somewhere else. I could have did that. How dumb would that have been? And Tiffany, by that same token, she could have left. She could have just up and walked away. No, I don't want to do this anymore. How smart that would have been. I know some of you are thinking that. But you see, there was no actual commitment there. Ah, but on August the 1st, 2009, all of that changed. Because on that day, we said vows to one another in the presence of others and in the presence of God. We put rings on each other's fingers and in that moment, everything changed. Now there was a commitment that we must not leave. It's a commitment that we would have for life to one another. We must stay together. You see, then the comparison to baptism, when we obey the gospel, when we submit ourselves in baptism, that moment, in that moment, we are now committed to Christ. We are now bonded together with Him, united with Him in His death. No longer are we just hanging around all the other Christ followers. No longer are we just kind of looking religious and you know doing some nice things occasionally. No! Now we are taking up our cross and following Jesus. We are surrendering our lives to Him. We are pledging ourselves to Jesus. Jesus, I'm with you. I'm with you from now until the day that I die, until the day that you come back. I am committed to you. That, that is what makes baptism so life-changing. And young people, I'll say particularly to our teenagers right here, you need to think about that. That's a strong consideration for you. Am I ready to give my life to Jesus Christ. To make that commitment to obey the Lord. To glorify Christ in my body and in my life. To do things in God's way from now on. And that's very, very different from, I'm going to try to be a good person. That's very different from, I don't want to get in trouble with my parents anymore. Luke 9.23 talks about living to please Jesus. That the goal in my life is going to be to glorify Christ in all that I do. And I realize that I may not understand everything about that at age 11. And I probably won't even understand everything about that at age 21. And here I am on the doorstep of age 36 and I can certainly tell you I do not still understand everything about that. But what I do know is I know that that's my job. My job is to seek to please the Lord and to glorify Him. That's what I need to be doing every single day. That commitment that I made, it was made in the waters of baptism. And that is what profoundly changes us. It profoundly changes every facet of our lives. and It changes us for the entirety of our lives. So where does that leave us this morning? I did not answer the question that I know all of our kids wanted me to answer, which is, How old do you have to be before you can be baptized? But I hope you see, kids, that it's not an age. We're not talking about some set age. When the Ethiopian man asked that question, what doth hinder me from being baptized? Philip did not say, "Mm, how old are you? Let me see some form of identification. Let me be clear exactly how old you are. That's not what he said. There's no magic number. That's, That's not what it's about at all. The correct answer to the question of how old do you have to be or when can you become a Christian, the answer is a person is ready to be baptized when they have an understanding. And kids, it is important for you to know that if you want to understand 
And if you pray for that understanding, then the day will come that you will understand. And when that day comes, suddenly, suddenly it will all just click into place. And you will know. And you will know that you know. Until then, I want you to remember that baptism is wonderful and it is incredible. It's the single greatest thing that you will ever do. Remember that baptism does come from knowing some facts about Jesus, but even more than that, it comes from knowing some things about yourself. And I will tell you thirdly that baptism, it will absolutely change you through and through because it is a commitment to serve Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean that Christians do that perfectly, but it does mean that Christians want to, and we're trying to, and we wish we could do it perfectly. Because that's what baptism is about. It is about the beginning of our walk with Jesus Christ. Now, is this everything that could be said about baptism? Absolutely not. There is so much more that could be said. Baptism in the Scriptures, it is a rich and it is a full discussion and it is worth exploring further. There's other facets of this that you want to explore with your children, but I hope that these ideas at least will give you a little bit of starting ground as you work with your kids. I'll direct your attention this morning to the front page of the bulletin. This would not be a good day to just leave the bulletin left in the the pews. This would be a good bulletin to take home and to keep somewhere because on the front page you'll find five or six really, I think, very thought-provoking questions that kind of serve as a supplement to the things that I've already talked about in this sermon. Some good ideas, some things that are going to be worth your consideration. And then let me do you even one better. Let me give you a tool. Let me give you a lesson book You'll find this white packet. You'll find that out in the foyer. It was placed there. And I noticed a couple of people that got up and they ended up getting one after I thought I was going to secretly place those where nobody would see me put them out. But you'll find this in the rack in the foyer as you're leaving today. And this little packet, this little lesson book, if you will, it is designed to guide you. And more importantly, it's designed to guide your child through some very fundamental things. And it'll help you to gauge, number one, their interest in obeying the gospel. It'll help you as well to gauge their level of readiness to obey the gospel. I'll encourage you to pick one of these up. And if we run out of these, I can certainly make more copies of these if somebody makes that request. All of these kinds of resources, coupled most importantly with your conversations with your child and with your prayers for your child, those are the kinds of things that will help us to parent in a way that pleases God and in a way that ultimately brings these precious souls to Him. Now as we prepare to sing the song of invitation... Can I tell you about one more thing that baptism is? One more thing that kids need to understand about baptism? It's something that I really didn't discuss in this sermon. Baptism, if I could add a fourth thing, it is urgent. It is urgent. In the Bible, when people understood these kinds of things, when people grasped the personal implications of the gospel, when people realized what they needed to do to respond and to access the grace and mercy of God, in every case in the Bible, those people did it immediately. That's that Acts 22.16 passage that we read earlier. Why do you wait? Why do you delay? There is no reason to delay. If you get it, if you understand it, then get up, Saul. Get up. Be baptized and wash away your sins. And this morning, That is the very plea that I am making as we sing this invitation song. If you're not a Christian, but you get all of this, you know all this stuff, 
You're well grounded in your understanding. You know all these things. I hope that right now will be the moment that it all finally clicks for you so that you finally see the urgency of salvation. And let us baptize you in the name of Jesus Christ, in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit for the remission of your sins. Whether you're young or whether you're old, if you're ready, then we're singing this song to encourage you. We're singing this song to encourage you to do that right now. Would you come forward and make those wishes known? Do that while we stand and while we sing.